It's a very good afternoon. It is Niall Boylan with you once again. Second time in one day. I'm so good they want to see me twice every single day. But there you go. Um, look, I decided I want to talk to this particular individual because I thought it was the most interesting interview that I heard when I listened to an interview recently uh, with him. And he's written a book and it's called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. And you'll, well, you'll understand why in a few minutes. I don't want to delve too deeply into that. But there are addictions out there. You've got the obvious addictions. You've got drink. You've got alcohol. You've got gambling. You've got all the other ones. But there is another addiction too. And here in the Rutland Centre, by the way, in Ireland, in Dublin, um, it's one of the most growing addictions. I'm going to talk about that in a second. And the man is Joshua Shea. And Joshua joins me on the line. Joshua, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me on your program today. You're very welcome. Now, when I said it's the addiction nobody talks about, and that's the title of your book, it, nobody talks about it because of the shame that's attached to it. And we've seen a growing number of people in Ireland addicted. We have a place called the Rutland Centre. We have a few other places mm -hmm. where people go with serious addictions. And this is one of those addictions that nobody talks about because firstly, the shame attached to it. Then we kind of mock people or it's funny or there's something weird about it. But it's pornography. And... I don't know, first of all, Joshua, and I know you help other people now. We'll talk about that a bit later on, how you help other people. And I'm going to get into how you ended up in this situation, helping other people with porn addictions. But firstly, in relation to pornography, we associate pornography with an addiction that just affects men uh, primarily. Is that the truth? It was the truth in the pre-internet days because it was basically the straight white male who was targeted by the pornography companies prior to the internet. This was because creating pornography cost a lot of money back then. Hiring actors, creating, you know, having a set, distributing the film, all of this cost money. These days with the internet, with the advent of so much uh, amateur material out there, it costs next to nothing to produce porn. So what we're seeing since the advent of high-speed internet is that pornographers can now narrow cast their audience. So when you look at statistics of, or growing statistics of pornography addiction, it actually isn't the straight white male who's growing the fastest. It's people of color, it's people of religion, it's females, because they are finally being targeted. In the past, sure, the straight white man would go to that theater. Well, the we, well we have the testosterone, don't we? Isn't it? The man exactly. has the testosterone. We, well, we would go to the theater on the edge of town. We would we would buy the, these magazines. But now that you can get this from the comfort of your home and nobody else is going to know about this, we're finding out that just about everybody. Well, well they don't even have to produce it anymore. Most of the pornography that you see on the popular websites now or it's kind of homegrown stuff. It's, you know, it's yeah, it's John exactly. and Alice in their front room or whatever it happens to be, and they just post the video. So they don't even need lights and fancy cameras anymore. They could just use nope. it with their own little webcams or their, their iPhone, of course, which has a wonderful camera on it. Now, let's get to you. I want you to go right back to why yeah. this started or how this started. I mean... Did you, was there a lack of sex in your life? I mean, were you not being satisfied sexually or, and you know, and when was the kind of first time you, you kind of knew that there was a bit of a problem here? Because look, every bloke has watched pornography, has looked at a bit of pornography in those moments where you want to have a little bit of alone time. But, but when was the time you realized there was a bit of a problem? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that people who are pornography addicts are not using it for the same reason that everybody else is. It starts out the same, but what happens is we become addicted to the brain chemicals that are created. We become addicted to the dopamine, the oxytocin, the serotonin that is created when we, when we use this stuff. The average person is just using pornography as a surrogate for sexual behavior. I can tell you in the last several years that I was an addict, and I was an addict for 24 years, and I, I know we'll get to that. The last many years of using, I didn't even care what was on the screen. The only reason I cared about pornography was because that was the way to get this set of chemicals that my body craved more than anything else. 
I am very textbook when it comes to being a pornography addict. And the seeds of pornography addiction are usually sown when somebody is very, very young. I was the victim of uh, sexual assault when I was young. I also had some uh, mental trauma because of uh, the way that I was taken care of by a grandmother. And while I kind of put this away, this was around the age of six, seven, I put this away for a little while. When an older cousin showed me a hardcore pornography magazine for the first time, I was addicted that second. And I didn't understand why at that point, it's only through years of studying and years of therapy that I understand. But what it what with me, seeing that hardcore pornography normalized what happened to me when I was a child. And I'm, it made it acceptable and it made me want to see more of it. So from when you, when you say you made you want to see more of it, and I do apologize for interrupting you, but That's when okay. you initially saw, I'm assuming it was straight pornography, it was man, woman having sex and probably yes. different types of sex. I mean, yes. did you then, were you not getting satisfied by that? Did, did, did you not get the chemicals anymore at one point and say, I need to see something more extreme, more hardcore? Or Absolutely. What was Absolutely. And is that the this norm? Is an like, yeah. Much like somebody might start with, you know, gets drunk on two or three pints of beer, then suddenly it has to be six, then they have to move to harder stuff. All addictions escalate. So what did it for me and what made me satisfied when I was 15 years old wasn't enough when I was 20 years old, wasn't enough when I was 25 years old. You continue to need to increase not just the frequency and duration of use, but the material itself. You know, one man, one woman having missionary style sex just wasn't didn't do doing it for, it for me anymore. You need to make it more exotic. That's why we see if you go to a if you go to a website these days, you usually see you know, 900 different categories because... And were you consuming much of it? I mean, how much were you consuming per day of... I, I always say that when it comes to alcohol and drugs and everything else, but I suppose it's the same with pornography because it takes up your time. That's that's what you're losing. With alcohol and pornography, you're losing money and you're losing your health, but with pornography, you're losing your time. So how much of your time per day was being taken up with, you know, searching the internet, looking for pornography or different types of pornography? Uh, prior to the internet, I mainly used videotapes. Uh, there was back when, you know, we remember video stores. Uh, I, I found a video store that when I was 14 years old would rent pornography to me. So every day after school, I went and I rented a pornography film and I would go back to my house and use it. So I was, I was using pornography as a teenager, probably about 90 minutes, five, six days a week. Um, and then as I grew and I continued to use pornography through my mid-30s, what I can do is look back at my timeline and see those times when I was under greater stress, those times when I had greater anxiety was when I leaned on the pornography more. There were times where I would use maybe 10 times in a week, and there were times where I might only use once or twice in a week because things were going okay with me. It really depended on what was happening in my life. I was going to say I that when you got into a relationship. I mean, look, every guy will say to you, well, when I was out of a relationship, I used pornography a bit more to masturbate or whatever it is. Yeah. So when you got into a relationship or I don't know what relationships are, how many relationships you're in. And when you started to get into relationships later in your teen years, did you then, did that subside a bit? Did it come down the amount of pornography that you were consuming because you would have been having hopefully real sex? Briefly briefly mm -hmm. and that's one of the litmus tests nowadays as a coach when i talk to people to find out really where they are that's one of the biggest questions i ask is when you get in a relationship how long did it take to return to porn and if it doesn't take much time at all that usually indicates a problem because for the average person when you move from a non-relationship using pornography as a surrogate as most do into the relationship where you no longer need the porn because you have the real person. Well, people who are addicts, having sex and getting those chemicals are two absolutely different things. 
Just because there's an orgasm at the end of both of them doesn't mean they're the same thing. So addicts continue to use when they enter into a relationship. And while there is usually a short time of intercourse, uh, it's right back to it. And did you find then in the relationships that your standard intercourse, because you know, you're not going to find most likely a woman or a man, if you're, if you're a gay man, for example, you're not going to find a woman or a man or whatever partner that's going to do the stuff that's probably in pornography, in hardcore porn, you know, because generally speaking, that's a fantasy. It's not real life. There are very few I, I people like even, that. I can't bend that way either. You yeah, know? absolutely. Uh, you know, so, so that's not real life. So the chance of finding somebody who's going to be happy to do all of that kind of stuff that was feeding that dopamine and all those chemicals in your head were probably slim. So is that the problem? And is that why people return back to pornography again? No, because it actually, it serves two different masters. You're not getting that dopamine rush from the actual sexual intercourse. You're getting it from the pornography. I, I, the way I describe it a lot of times, the pornography was just kind of like a cracker. And a cracker is a cracker is a cracker. It's what you put on top of it that makes it special. And those chemicals are what made pornography special for me. When I was with a girlfriend or I was with my wife, having intercourse was a completely different thing. It, it served a completely different master because I didn't really care what was on the screen. I didn't care what I was watching. I just wanted to get those chemicals. I needed to feel that, that high of the chemicals. And I wasn't getting that in, in bed. And one of the really interesting things is if you talk to uh, an intercourse addict, um, they can have the most beautiful, loving partner who is a supermodel in bed with them, and they will still sneak out in the middle of the night to go have risky sex with a risky partner in a bad situation, not because they like having sex in an alleyway behind a bar. It's because that's the only way they can get those chemicals. And when those chemicals hijack your mind, when they actually cause brain damage, because addiction is a disease and the disease causes brain damage, it tells you, it gives you the message, you need this, you need this, you need this. Anybody who has been an addict of anything can tell you about that magnetic mm -hmm. draw. And that's what happens with the pornography. It's not that I'm attracted to breasts. It's not that I'm attracted to body parts more than the average guy. It's that I need the chemicals that come out of using the pornography. I mean... Other addictions like alcohol and gambling and drugs affect the people around you as well. And you mentioned that you got married. What age were you when you got married, by the way? I was 26 when I got married and we mm. just celebrated our 20th anniversary. Okay. And did your wife or fiance at the time, maybe uh, before, even before you got married, was she aware of your addiction? No, she knew that I looked at porn once in a while. I think she even looked at porn once in a while. She had the belief, like most women of the time, boys will be boys. They'll occasionally watch this stuff. It's no big deal. And by that point, when I met her when I was 26, I'd already been an addict for 14 years. And if I learned how to hide it from my mother, I can hide it from anybody. So... You kept this from your wife. Now, things started to get darker because, again, you weren't being satisfied by this pornography. Um, right. You needed more. So you're searching, I suppose. I don't know if you Google search at this stage. I don't know whether we were on the are – we, are we at internet stage now? We are. Yes. And, yes. and you would have been Google searching. So what were you searching for? Or was it just anything to make it more risque? It was anything that would work that day. The reality is about you know 10 seconds after I finished masturbating with pornography, I couldn't even tell you what I had looked at. It didn't matter to me. If it was going to be somebody of a certain nationality that day, oh well. If it was going to be a certain sex act that day, oh well. It didn't matter to me. I searched until I found something that day that was going to get the job done. And as the as the disease of addiction progressed, 
it got more and more difficult to find the things that I could get that chemical reaction I needed. And to your own shame, because you've admitted this, that you're, you're quite ashamed of what you did at the time, you started delving into things like bestiality. You mentioned, I heard you mentioned on a previous interview, bestiality. Do you really, I mean, most of us, our stomach is even turning thinking about that. Did you really get a kick out of a woman with an animal or what, an animal with a woman or whatever it happened to be? Did you get a kick? I mean, do you get that same kick out of that? Because if I looked at something like that, Joshua, I would be completely turned off. That would be vomit-inducing almost. So, so but you were getting a kick out of it. I wouldn't say I was getting a traditional sexual thrill out of it. All I cared about was, did it work? I was not excited by it. I was not disgusted by it. I had no real emotion towards it whatsoever. It was just another genre out there. And I was just looking for that fix. So, and, and I should make it known that, you know, that was just something that was mm -hmm. another option out there. It, I didn't really think about the morality of it. I didn't think about the disgustingness of it. Now, you know, 10 years since I've used porn, it turns my stomach as much as it does yours now that I'm healthy. But I can look back and say, it didn't matter to me what was on the screen. Truly. And were you worried when you were looking at stuff? Like, well, look, bestiality is illegal in most countries now. Were, were you mm -hmm. concerned that, God, if somebody catches me doing this or if they check my computer or if somebody finds out, I'm done for? Did that, if my wife finds out, marriage is over. Were you concerned about that at the time? I was concerned, but the concern never outlasted the need for the dopamine, the need for the serotonin and the oxytocin. I was, I was also an alcoholic, I, sh I should mention, and I had these, I had these two crutches in my life, and they were the priority. They were. Well, more did you have a happy life? Wife. I mean, were you happily, you know, were other things in your life separate from this? In other words, was your marriage happy? Did you have a good job? Was it a happy life that you had apart from this dark side of I your was, life? I was a leader in my community. I was on my city council over here. So I was a local politician. I owned a publishing company. I created uh, a couple of the largest magazines in this region. I was I created a, an international film festival that got all kinds of uh, publicity. I was a classic overachiever because what I was doing as an addict was trying to escape myself. And I would put these different masks on. I didn't use pornography when I was at work. I didn't drink very much when I was at work because that's when I felt like I was under control. It was when I was at home at midnight and the wife and kids had gone to sleep and I didn't have any work to do and nobody needed anything. That's when Joshua Shea had to sit with himself by himself and he couldn't do that. So that's when he was drinking. That's when he was using pornography because I could not deal with who I was. I could play magazine publisher. I could play local politician. But who I was at the core, I hated. And I was scared to death anybody would find out who I really was. This is not what I'm saying because you're porn. a pillar. Look, you're a pillar of the community, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and on the other hand, you're a deviant as far as people from the outside would be looking in. Absolutely. They're two completely I, opposites. I yeah, I'm, I knew I had to hide all this. Okay, so it went from bestiality and it became more dangerous. Um, you started then searching for younger girls. Why were you doing well, that? I'm, 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 what was the reasoning behind that? And I'll let you clarify exactly what it was you were looking for. But what was the reasoning behind that? Because again, as I'm 60, by the way, it's my birthday tomorrow. So as an older man, you know, I'm not interested in very young girls. I'm interested generally in women in and around my own age. They say men are generally interested in women 10 years younger than them. Um, obviously at my age. Um, so the idea of searching for or that kind of search, you know, we kind of, we park that to people who have a problem. Uh, and look, you've admitted you had a problem. So why why did you want to search for younger women? And, and, and what was coming up on your screen? And when it was coming up on your screen, were you not horrified by that? 
Okay. Well, what I have to clarify is that I was not searching for children. I started to go into chat rooms where I would talk to adult women and I would try to convince them over time to take off their clothes or perform sexually. This was with adult women. What happened with me was that um, one of the women in one of the, or one of the females in one of these chat rooms ended up being a teenage girl. I was not going she was on 14. to the she, she was 14 yes. years of age. Yes. I was not going onto the internet searching for children. Did she tell I, you? I wanted... Did she tell you she was fourteen? No, no. Did you not? And... I mean, don't get me wrong. A seventeen-year-old can look twenty-three, you know. A nineteen-year-old mm -hmm. can look thirty, you know. But a fourteen-year-old, it's hard to believe that you would be mistaken in thinking that they're a twenty-two or twenty-three-year-old. Did that? I agree with you? you. I agree with you, and I don't know if where I was at the time in my head because I was very sick at the time. I wasn't asking for IDs, but I will tell you if I saw anybody who looked like a child, who looked underage to me, I passed them right by. Because it's important to point out that people use the, people use the phrase or the word pedophilia without really understanding what it means. Pedophilia is attraction to somebody who has not yet reached puberty. That was not what I was into whatsoever. But that's that's not what generally people's understanding of it when we talk about it in the courts and everything else. No, true. That, I, I understand the point you're making, but the, the general understanding of pedophilia are generally older men. It's, it's generally not women, although it does happen with women too. Older men who are attracted to girls under the age of 18. And that's normally what people associate pedophilia with, usually teenagers. Right. That's, and, that's kind of the societal definition. Absolutely. And, and to most people, they're horrified by it. They're disgusted by it. The very idea of it, because many men will have daughters, and the very idea of an older man wanting to see his daughter in any kind of position like that would be horrifying. And they would immediately say that man should go to jail for the rest of his life. And that's the way that, because people... When I talk to people about pedophilia on the air, we talk about, you know, people who've been arrested for whatever it is that been involved with minors. Mm -hmm. You know, they have little or no sympathy. They don't want to know what was wrong with them. They don't want to know why they did it. They just know they did it and you should go to jail. And, and, and you must have, as a pillar of the community, as a politician, as a counsellor, as a publisher, you must have known how deviant that was and how horrible that was. I did not know that she was under 18 for sure. And I honestly didn't remember her because I did this with many women in their 20s, in their 30s. I honestly did not know that she was under 18. That's not an excuse. I'm just telling you as a matter of fact, I did not know. I, I would have told you she was 18 or 19 years old. At what point did you realize or did you find out? When she... the police showed up at my door four months later, because what happened was well, she lived well, describe on the other side. Describe that day for me. So you're you're in the house. Your wife obviously knows nothing yep. about it, apart from the fact she knows you look at a bit of porn. And I'm I mean, in the house. I, you were I was on your working own at the time. that morning. Yeah. The, the weather was bad here. So I was working from home that morning. And I was at my kitchen table working on my laptop. And I saw three cars and a van pull up to the front of my house. And you don't have to be a fan of 80s cop shows to know what unmarked police cars look like. I knew it was the police immediately. I had no idea why they were there. When I went to the door, the uh, police officer in front, he said that uh, they believed that I had underage pornography or I had searched for underage pornography. And I was involved with underage pornography, which blew my mind. And I was, oh, well, come on in. Let's straighten this out. And then they sat down and told me exactly what I did. And I said, yeah, you've got me. You've got me. If she was... Under take, 18, I can't I can't argue this. Did they take your devices then, your computers, your laptops? Yep. They took they all took my everything. devices. They yep, they took all of my devices at that point and uh they arrested me. And um my wife What was that? What was they, that feeling? What was that feeling like? That that must have been the most shameful moment of your life because 
as you said, it's like a cop show. All your neighbours are looking. I don't know if you live in a community, but all your neighbours yeah. are watching you being marched out the door, I'm assuming with handcuffs on you. Um, and you... They waited until I got outside to put me in handcuffs. And you knowing why they're there, what you're being arrested for, and knowing in your own head, I'm guilty. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, what are the neighbours thinking? That's my job. There's my career. Probably been my marriage. Um, everything gone. Yeah. What was that moment yeah. like when your when your head is being pushed down by a police officer into the car? It is my life is never going to be the same moving forward from here. But I also had this sense over the last several months that something was coming to a head. Theoretically, I should have driven my car into a telephone pole or a house for how much I was drunk and how much I behaved poorly when I was drunk. But it was, it, I never had any idea it would be pornography that would be my, my downfall because most people saw me as an alcoholic. They didn't know anything about the porn, and I saw myself as an alcoholic. I thought the pornography was just a poor decision I made when I was drunk. It wasn't until I went to after. So I, I well, but you knew it, yeah, but you knew what you were doing, Joshua. I, you know, you're an intelligent man. I mean, because you have your own business, you're a politician and a counselor, so you're an intelligent yeah. man. And I suppose. It's easy, and I'm speaking on the listener's behalf now. It's easy to, you know, use an excuse that, oh, I was drunk at the time, or I needed that chemical, or I... But you're a grown man. You're an intelligent well, man. All I'm you saying knew, is, I didn't you knew realize what you were doing was, was really addiction. wrong. But you knew it was wrong. Of course. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I also know that eating a second piece of cake is wrong doesn't mean that I don't sometimes do that. There's a difference. I was very There's a much massive... That's not a good analogy. But an addict is able to tell them, well, a food addict could certainly do that. A, a, an addict is able to tell themselves any story that they need to, to do what they have mm -hmm. to do. They're able to minimize, they're able to justify, they're able to tell themselves whatever they have to tell themselves in order to get to those chemicals. That's why there's so much lying in relationships when pornography is involved. There's so much deceit is because it's more important. And I genuinely, the feeling I had inside my body was that if I did not get these chemicals, I was going to somehow die. That's how strong okay. the pull to the chemicals were. So you're in the back of the police car. Um, at that stage, you believe that's the end of it now. My I, actually was in, I actually was in the front seat. He, he oh, okay. put me in the front seat with him. My career, is over. He, my career is over. My life is never going to be the same again. And firstly, your marriage has to be an important aspect of all this. So Number one. You, he left you, your phone with you and you asked, yeah. could you call your wife? Yeah. And you did. What mm -hmm. what is a man who's just been arrested for child pornography, encouraging a child to strip off who was fourteen years of age? What does he say to his wife when she answers the phone and goes, "Hi, honey." I said, "Hi, I have some. Uh, uh, I need to tell. I mean, I, I wish I knew the exact wording, but it was like, hey, brace yourself. Um, I have just been arrested for having underage." For looking at underage pornography i don't know all the details yet but i did this and i'm trying to figure this out exactly what happened please go get 500 dollars and meet me at the sheriff's office because they said that's going to be my bail and i will tell you more when you you come and she was like okay i'll go get the money and i will be there in 45 minutes do you realize how lucky you are because oh, yes. the, the average oh, yes. wife wouldn't have let you get to the end of the sentence and they would have hung Absolutely. up on you and say, I'll see you in court for the divorce. Because all these years later, now that I work with now that I work with men as a pornography coach, I can tell you that I I bet in this situation only about one out of five women stay. So I and, and that's completely very, understandable because you know, Absolutely. it's reprehensible behavior. Yeah, 
I wouldn't I wouldn't have stayed. I've told my wife that many times. And Thank why did you she, so why did she stand week. by you? What what was her reasoning for that? Well, apart from the fact that she obviously loves you, what's her what was right. her reasoning for standing by you? Did she say did she contemplate leaving you? Oh, many times. I'll, I'll tell you, she picked me up after I, I got bailed out about 30 minutes later. I, after, I never saw the charged. inside of a jail cell. Yeah. Because of who I was in the community, everybody in the room knew me. So they just let me sit in a chair in the lobby. And my wife in, came and got me. And they said, your wife is outside. You can go. And I got into my vehicle and I looked at her and I said, don't say a word. Don't say a word. I know that this is too much for anybody to deal with. I'm not going to fight you on a divorce. I'm not going to fight you on custody of the kids. I'm not going to fight you on the house. You can have everything. I'm not going to defend myself. And she said, we all know that you have been very sick for a very long time. I didn't know it was this. I thought it was just alcohol. But let's go. Let's go get the kids. Let's go over to your parents' house and let's start discussing what our next steps are. But here's the thing. Any normal woman would be thinking to herself, how old were your kids at that stage, by the way? Your own, your uh, own children. My daughter was 13 and my son was nine. Your daughter was a year younger than the girl that you encouraged to take her clothes off. So yes. any wife in that situation would be saying if he has a pent of, or if he has an addiction or he likes looking at, you know, a 14-year-old girl, you know, naked or taking her clothes off, is her daughter safe? That's the first thing that would come into their head. Did that, did that dawn on her? Did she say that to you? Was she a Absolutely. Absolutely. She asked me many times, are our children safe here? And the answer and how was you, yes. But how did you know they were? Because I don't know much too much about addiction. You know more about addiction than I do. But the very idea that you would be, or you could settle it in your own mind at that time, I'm not talking about, you know, outside of the time of watching porn, that it was okay to watch this 14-year-old to get those chemicals. That doesn't, but that's not logical. Now, that's I, not I, logical. I, I wasn't saying I want to look at a 14. No, no, no. I know I'm, what I'm saying because to that's is, how I get off. Absolutely. Because that's not logical thinking. So what I'm saying right. is how can you assure your wife then, or how can she be assured that your children are safe when you weren't logically thinking anyway, in the first place, you couldn't have been. Correct. She had faith in me, I guess she wanted to believe that I could fix this. She knew me because we'd been together at that point for nine or 10 years. I think she wanted to give me a chance and she works in the medical field and she understood addiction far better than I did at that point. And the next day when um, I first met with a lawyer, uh, I, had, I was in a room with a lawyer, my father, and my wife. We all had a conversation about this. And my lawyer put it to me better than anybody else did. He said, you know, he asked, do you have any drug or alcohol problems? And I said, no, I don't. And my, my wife and my father both laughed and said, oh, he's an alcoholic, majorly. So my lawyer said, okay, well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to send you off to treatment. And I said, fine, if you want me to play that game, that's cool. I can go and pretend that I'm an alcoholic and that I got better. And he stopped me right there and he said, hey, listen, someday all of this legal stuff will be over. Maybe you'll go to jail. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have a big probation and a parole. Maybe you won't. But someday all of this legal stuff will be over. Do you want to be the same person you are now? Let's get you some real help and we'll worry about the legal stuff later. Let's get you help now. And that was the first time it mm -hmm. dawned on me, truly, I need to fix this problem. I can fix this problem. And it was very obvious from that meeting that my wife needed to see me go through the recovery process do the very hard work, fundamentally change as a human being. And if I did not, she was out the door. But she also had to deal with the backlash. 
And you, Absolutely. And you, you admitted yourself as a publisher, you were well aware the newspapers were going to have a field day. Because you're a local councillor, you're a politician, you're well known, you're a pillar. And the headline is job in media. My first job in media was at the newspaper that covered it. And and the headline was City Councilman nailed on sex charge. That's it. You're done when you see a headline like that. Six columns across the front of the front page. How did your family deal with that? Because you've gone now from being the pillar of the community to being the shame of the community. So how did your family deal with that? That must have been tough. I think I think that my mother immediately went into denial mode. I think that she has been in denial mode for the last 10 years and is still there, that her little prince could do anything wrong. My father looked at it very objectively. He's a science guy. He said, well, what's going on here? Is this something fixable? Are you attracted to children? Is this about porn? What is this? He wanted to know the ins and outs of it. And, uh, my wife and my lawyer wanted to get me into treatment as quickly as possible. I'm just going to read here from the newspaper. I don't know how long it took to eventually get you into court, but I know there was to and froing. There was suggestions of how long you should go to jail for, if you should go to jail, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et but it's, I'm just reading mm-hmm. this here. Joshua Shea, 39, had admitted at his plea hearing in May to downloading pornographic images of children under the age of 12, under the age of 12 and coercing a 14-year-old Californian girl to perform sex acts live on a live video when he recorded, which he recorded. Um, Shay's attorney, David Van Dyke, argued on Friday for a fully suspended sentence, and District Attorney Andrew Robinson argued that Shay should spend five years in prison for his crimes, but the E.C. County Superior Court Justice Joyce Wheeler imposed a sentence on Friday of eight years in prison, but with all but with nine months suspended. And obviously you would be on the register of sex offenders. So Mm -hmm. did you do nine months in jail? I ended up doing six months and one week. What was that like? Did you have, when you were in jail and you were with people who weren't pillars of the community, obviously, firstly, I'm sure it was frightening to be in jail. Um, Absolutely. Did you have time to, did, did that give you time to reflect on what you had done and how bad what you had done was? Well, it's important to point out that my arrest was in March 2014. By April 2014, I had got into the alcohol rehab. Uh, After the alcohol rehab, I did a sex and porn rehab. I spent a total of uh, almost 18 weeks in rehabilitation centers after the arrest. By the time that I went to my sentencing, which was in January 2016, 22 months after I was arrested, I had done so much therapy, I had done so much rehab, that I was probably, at that point, the healthiest version of myself I had ever been standing in front of the judge. The judge even said, I know that I'm not sentencing the same guy you were two years ago. But it's not like I can just let this go by. I recognize the work you've done. You've done great work. And that was one of the reasons why I didn't get a longer sentence was because I was on the rehabilitative path. Were you prepared for that, by the way? Were you prepared for the fact that you could have got nine years, that you could have got five years? Absolutely. Because you didn't know to those words. Those 22 months of waiting were scary. Those 22 months of not knowing what was going to happen to me were scary. And I tried to mentally prepare for a long prison sentence. I, you know, tried to tell myself that I was going to go in and make the best of my time no matter what happened. Um, Try to become a better person because I was already on that path at that point. And and your kids, who were then probably 14 or 15 years of age, and uh, I don't know how old your youngest one, what what were they told? Or I mean, it's kind of hard not to tell them the truth, particularly if they're 14 or 15 years of age. Right, exactly. they got to be told the truth. Your dad is possibly going to go to jail because he was looking at pornographic images. Is that mm-hmm. what they were told? The day that I was arrested, we explained to them, my wife and I explained to them that I looked at pictures of, of people on the internet that you're not allowed to look at because they were not old enough. 
and you can get in trouble for that. And that's that's how we kept it very simply for them on the first day. As time went on and as they've grown older, they're now 20 and 24, they began to understand. I've actually written four books about this, not just one. Mm-hmm. And they've read several of those books. I've done hundreds of interviews. They've heard many of them. They know the entire story at this point. See, when I, you know, initially when I, I had been talking to my producer uh, in relation to your story, you know, I, I obviously thought it was pretty bad. But then obviously mm-hmm. today I was doing a little bit more research and I kind of just looked into it. And, and when I seen images of children under 12, I find it difficult in my own mind to settle any excuse. And I, I, I'm not suggesting you're giving me excuses. But, no, but, yeah, but, you know, be it alcoholism, be it addiction, be whatever mm-hmm. it is. There is it's no like, excuse. You know, it's, it's like when somebody goes to court, for example, and I've seen some cases here where there was a case recently where a guy murdered a girl. He stood on her head and stamped on her head and cracked her skull. And when it went to court, I said he should go to jail for life. But the mitigating circumstance was that he was drunk and the judge reduced his sentence because he was drunk. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't go to jail. Of course he did for a long time. But he still reduced the sentence because he was drunk. And I did this kind of whole rant on the radio about it that I don't care what he was. What he did was a horrible, horrible crime. He killed an innocent woman and and killed her in a a manner that was despicable. And when we talk about pornography, I've often talked about, you know, people who, you know, download child porn or whatever it is on the internet. We see some of the people getting away with it, suspended sentences or whatever. And we talk about it on the air. And we say... There is no excuse. I mean, I'm not suggesting people can't be rehabilitated, by the way. But I I just, I can't settle. And I know that most listeners can't settle any excuse for it. And and I I just find it infathomable that somebody could say that I, I'm looking at a, a child under 12 years of age, you know, on the internet performing a sex act. But I don't see it like that. I just see it as a vehicle to satisfy the chemicals in my brain. And people find that hard to believe, Joshua. And I'm sure you understand that. I absolutely understand that. And I'm not asking for forgiveness. I'm not asking for understanding. What I did was a heinous, disgusting thing. And I deserved to be punished for it. Absolutely. And what I have had to do over the, I have had people over the years who have told me I should have been thrown in jail and they should have thrown away the key. Mm-hmm. I've also had people who have said, who are more on the other side and have said, I can't believe you were in jail for that long. You shouldn't have gone to jail at all. You were a very sick person, which I say is not an excuse. It isn't an excuse. What I've had to do for myself and my inner peace at this point is say that the only person who got to decide what happened to me was that judge, and I accept what she decided. And that's the way that I, I had to get at peace with it, because there were opinions all over the place. Honestly, if I had been on the other side of it, I would have wanted to throw the book at me as well. Mm. But you yeah, well, did That's what I'm ask, saying. You're a politician and a counselor, and I'm sure you've seen other people being guilty of the same what thing. Was, what was yeah. happening in my mind at the time, that is honestly what was happening in my mind at the time. I was a sick a sick, sick person. And I'm not defending that. I'm not defending that at all. That's the way that I was. When when you come out of jail, after spending some time in jail and reflecting, obviously, on what you've done, because you would have had a lot of time sitting in a cell on your own, reflecting on what you'd done, and obviously making sure in your own mind that you would never do something as silly as that again. When, when you come out, what was it like? What was the atmosphere in the community like? And I, I, I don't know, obviously, I don't live there, so I don't know if it's a small community or a big community or if it's a tight-knit community. Does everybody know each other? A bit like villages in Ireland, everybody knows everybody's business. What what was it like when you come out? Were you like some sort of pariah in society? Were people looking well, at you going, there's the guy, there's the guy? Again, when I got out, it had already been well over two years since it happened. It was after the arrest that the pariah stuff happened that I didn't feel safe in my community. If I was going to go out to dinner with my family, we drove 30, 40 miles away where nobody knew me. Um, And that's the way I did not feel safe in my community for several years. 
um, because I was afraid somebody was going to come at me because of what I did, because I understood the disgusting, heinous nature of what I did. I, I fully get it. I fully understand and, it. I do, don't you think, want do you think people in the I community, don't. do you think people in the community after you'd served your time in jail, do you think people in the community, there was a level of forgiveness or un, maybe not understanding, but a level of forgiveness? Do you think people in your community went, well, okay, we accept he was sick. He's done his time. Let's give him a second chance. Was that, did, was that the, the, the feeling that you got from people generally in the community? Probably about a third of them. Mm. A third were willing to listen to what happened. A third had questions. And two thirds just were like, no, you are erased from my life. And what about friends and uh, other family members, not your direct family, maybe cousins, uncles, aunts? Uh, the, the friends who I had the longest, the friends going back to being a teenager who really knew who I was, who who understood me, they stood by my side. The acquaintances that I made professionally in the years, couple years leading up to that, they they jumped off ship immediately. I can understand that. Yeah, yeah me too. I, I, I me too. too. Yeah. Um. So you kind of got your life back together to some degree. It would have been very difficult to rebuild your life after that. You know, obviously, you know, even getting a job would be difficult because everybody knew mm -hmm. who you were because you said you were already reasonably. I'm not going to say infamous <laughs> in the community no. already. Um. But since then, what made you then say, I want to help other people? Actually, before, before I asked you that, there was something I wanted yeah. to ask you. The 14-year-old girl that you met online, mm -hmm. that you asked to remove her clothes, et cetera, et cetera, that you were charged with. Did you ever write to her parents and apologize? No, I did not because I was not allowed to. Okay. But... Uh, she would not testify in the case. She refused to. I don't know what that was about. I did not get one of the things as I was going through my recovery. I did not get very deeply involved in the details of the case, how I was caught, how everything happened. I, I, I did not get involved at the time because I was just trying to keep my head above water. Since then, I've done all the research. I went through all the material. I understand everything that happened. At I'm the assuming time, it's her parent. I'm assuming her parents reported. I'm assuming that's what happened. Well, what happened was that she had done this many times with many men. Her parents repeatedly caught her doing this. Finally, they got so fed up, they took her hard drive and brought it to the police in the community she lived in. And, yeah, and that's how you were caught. That's how I was caught. Followed my IP address back to me. So leaving that aside, and for our listeners, it's hard to leave all of that aside. Absolutely, um, I understand. But I do want to focus on the addiction that you had. And now what you're doing is trying to help you. You've mm -hmm. written numerous books, as I mentioned already. And you try, you want to try and help other people. So people come to you now for assistance because you've been down this road. Um, if somebody comes to you and tells you, you know, I know all about you. I know what happened to you. I'm in the same boat. I just, I can't satisfy myself anymore with the porn I'm watching, you know, because this addiction is quite serious. What do you tell somebody like that? How, is that a cold turkey thing like drugs, like alcohol, like everything else? Do you, is it a cold turkey? It can be. For some people it is, and for some people it's a weaning process. I urge people to try cold turkey first, and if they can't do that, then we create a calendar that has a weaning process for them. And how how common is the problem, in, in your view? Because obviously you see a lot of people coming to you with the same problem, so you'd be familiar with it. But how common is it? Depending on which study you want to believe... Um, it is anywhere from 12 to 25 percent of at least the U.S. population falls under the dictionary definition of pornography addict. And that just simply means that they have three or more of the 11 symptoms of pornography addiction. I believe the number is probably just 
from, from my experience, I believe the number is probably just under 20%, with the bulk of it being uh, men who are under the age of 40. Would you because of somebody, high speed internet? Obviously, the internet has changed everything. But if somebody came to you and told you they were doing what you were doing, and they were looking at, you know, I don't know, animals, children under the age of 12, a 14 year old, whatever it is, would you report them? No. And have... the thing is, actual licensed therapists do not have to report them either. That's uh, locally. But when you, when you say I, do not have to, do you not believe after everything that you've been through and now knowing how wrong it was and, and reckoning that in your own mind now, how wrong that well, was? Do you not I, feel, I guess what I'd say is I'd have, to, I'd have to know the situation. I'd have to know the situation because the thing is, there is no connection, there is no study between pornography and child molesting or abusing children. 90% of the people who abuse children do not fall under the category of being, you know, a, a pedophile. Most of the time, it's somebody who the child knows. There is no direct line between pornography and child molestation. It's never been established. But, but but in saying that, the individuals who might come to you and say, well, look, you know, I'm looking at kids on the internet. You know, there is a victim. It's not a victimless crime. It's not just a screen. Right. You know, there's a victim. There's a child somewhere in the world who's being abused, who is being abused, uh, you know, for the purposes of making a movie to satisfy, you know, the urges of men who want to see it. So there's a victim there. So do you not feel some sort of moral obligation if somebody came to you and said to you, you know, I'm doing what you were doing. I'm looking at kids on the Internet. You know, do you not feel an obligation not only to say to them to stop immediately, but also to report them for what they're doing? No. I want to first learn what the details of what they're doing are and to determine if they are a danger. But that's, you're an expert in pornography, but we're not, neither one of us are psychologists or have an understanding of human sexuality, a very deep understanding of it. And although in your case, you've told me that you had a drink problem, you know, it was a chemical, it wasn't the actual looking at the porn, it was just to satisfy you at that particular moment in time, and you don't have a sexual attraction to children, but we don't know what every single individual case is for. There are right. guys who are looking at that because they have a sexual attraction to children and the sexual attraction to adults is not pacifying them anymore. It's not doing it for them anymore. So if they told me they had a sexual attraction to children, I would let them know that that is not a pornography addiction and that is beyond my scope of help. Would you not report them? No. But then how, how can we as a society say we're learning? If you've learned from your mistakes of the past and moving forward, you want to help others, how can we say we're learning if we're not willing to stop it from happening? Because that, it's something that has to be stopped, obviously. And you, you I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. I believe that I need to create and I need to have a reputation of creating a safe space for somebody to come and talk to me. If it's known that you mention you have delved into illegal territory and I'm immediately going to call the uh, authorities, nobody's going to come. But to I had the point. same debate going back 10 years ago with the Catholic Church in Ireland when report after report after report was suggesting that priests were abusing children. But more importantly, it wasn't just the, the, the small amount of priests, because it was a small amount in a percentage-wise right. you know, of priests. Correct. What was actually more alarming was those who didn't say anything, those who knew who didn't say anything. And what they did was the primate of Ireland, who is the cardinal of all Ireland, used the seal of confession as a way of saying, I didn't have to report anybody. And people debated that at the time and said, you cannot do that. We have a criminal justice act in this country, which means that if you... By law, if you are aware of any child's life, no matter if you know them or you don't know them or in another country, any child's life or any child can come to harm, you have a duty 
and a legal responsibility since 2013 in this country to report that to the police. And that goes for psychologists, for doctors. If I go to a doctor, for example, and I'm telling a doctor something, he will say, by the way, just to let you know, before we even start, if you tell me something that I believe a child is a danger, I must report that to the authorities. Do you not have feel more so than anybody else after what you've been through in your life? Do you not feel you have that obligation to, to protect children? I feel that I can probably protect more children by helping that person than by shunning them. I believe in rehabilitation. Now, the question uh, by is... By the way, so do I. I believe in rehabilitation, okay, too. The question is, is this person a pedophile, which I can't help, and I would dismiss them at that point, or is this person somebody who just delved into another form of pornography because they were addicted to pornography itself, and it's not that they were attracted to anybody or anything in it specifically. But either way, they're playing a role in that crime because the crime is the person who made the video of the child and abused that child to make that video. That's the crime. So they're playing a role in that crime because if there was nobody there to consume that stuff, nobody would be making it. That's the argument, isn't it? It's the laws of supply and demand. So they are partaking in that crime. And that's why we see people before the courts on a regular basis, you know, in possession of child pornography or whatever but it happens to be. This is also like saying you'd go after the drug users and not the drug dealers. You don't, you don't deal with the drug problem by going after the users. You go after the dealers. You go after the suppliers. We need to go after the pornographers. I'm not going to... A random guy who has stumbled upon this once or twice and comes to me for help because he realizes he's crossed a line and doesn't want to keep doing this, I think that's somebody who can be helped. That's somebody who recognizes their mistake. That's somebody who is trying to change. I believe that person deserves a chance. And in relation, how many people, uh, by the way, do many people come to you? Do you have many, you know, and is it primarily men that come to you, by the way? Uh, with my pornography practice, it's probably 75% men, 25% women. And with my betrayal trauma side of things, it's probably 90% women and 10% men. When you talk about betrayal trauma, let me get to that as well, because I think it's important. Yeah. So obviously betrayal trauma is, I, I'm assuming that that's dealing with obviously the wives or the husbands or whoever happens really? to be the people. Yeah. I mean, your wife would have suffered betrayal trauma. Uh, absolutely. So there, I suppose it's like, you know, AA, you'd have the partners of those who are alcoholics who have to deal with it. So how, how do you, what do you say to somebody that, and they come to you and say, my husband was caught or my wife was caught, you know, with child porn or my, my husband was caught, you know, he's a pedophile and what do I do now? Or he's cheated on me or whatever it happens to be. Well, well, I, I, I 99% of the people I deal with have nothing to do with children. No, it's just with pornography in general. So I do want to make that known. I almost never deal with this issue whatsoever. Mm -hmm. With with the wives, it's not generally the first thing is not the pornography. The first thing is the lying. That's yeah. what really gets under their skin more than anything else is the fact that they cannot trust their partner. And when you're talking to a woman who has been married 10, 20, 30 years and she finds that a that her partner did this under her nose for so long it brings up a lot of different issues number one did i cause this am i not pretty enough am i not enough in bed number two who is this man if he was able to lie to me about this what else has he lied about can I trust anything he's saying? And then finally, and this is usually for people who have been in longer relationships, it's what do I do now? It's not if I was if I was 20 and my boyfriend was doing this, I'd leave him. But I'm married. I have a mortgage. I have two kids. We have two cars. We have college payments. What do I this is not an easy situation. No, they're in a financial trap. Yes, up. they're in a financial trap sometimes. And I get that. But yes, I'm sure absolutely. there are absolutely. But I'm sure there are people that come to you that you would say, look, you're better off without this person because this person is oh, not yes. going to change. Because yes. my mother used to always say to me, a leopard never changes their spots. And there are individuals who will never change. 
they'll do it Correct. again. It's like alcoholics sometimes, you know, some of them will, will stay off the drink or the drugs, whatever it is. But a lot of them, unfortunately, will fall back off the wagon again. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that you would obviously warn them of that and say, well, look, there's a strong possibility they could do it again. And that's Absolutely. Or they could switch their addiction. That happens a lot of the time. With my younger male clients, I have to tell them and I have to tell their partners, watch his video game and gambling use. Because a lot of men will just migrate from pornography over to gambling or over to video games, which are also both process addictions, also provide the same exact chemicals that the pornography does. So all they're doing is moving their vehicle by which they get these chemicals from one addiction to another. And you can make an argument while, while the wife can say, well, at least he's not looking at naked ladies. Well, the fact is he is, instead of being a prisoner to the pornography addiction, now he's a prisoner to the video games, or now he's a prisoner to the gambling. You have also given TEDx uh, talks as well, um, and uh, you've been quite successful at those. How many books? You have four books now, by the way. The main one I mentioned at the start mm -hmm. was addiction, and nobody, the addiction nobody will talk about because, uh, as I said, getting right back to the start of the interview, it is the addiction nobody talks about because there's a shame attached to it. And there's also, by the way, the, the idea, too, that many women whose husbands are watching porn may consider it cheating. And I spoke to a woman once in the air, and she told me her husband was looking at porn, and she considered that cheating in the marriage. Most I mean, do. Most, most of my clients do. Yeah, because they're obviously fantasizing about other women. And as you Absolutely. said, they, they may, not, may not even understand the reason they're watching it is, as you mentioned earlier on, to get these you know chemicals, dopamine or whatever it is going in the brain rather than the sexual aspect of it. So what do you say, finally, if there's guys or girls, for that matter, listening who immediately after this podcast or this show will turn around and say, that's good, okay, I think I'll go and watch a bit of porn, who are addicted, who feel they may be addicted to porn, that they can't do without it, literally, that every time they go to a room on their own, they feel they have to look at it. What would you say to them? I would say that addiction, no matter what kind of addiction, only ends up in one of a few places. You lose your friends and family. You end up in a place of physical danger. You end up in trouble with the law. You end up dead or you get better. That's all, Those are the only places you generally go. Which one do you want to do? That's what I ask people. If you want to genuinely get better, I will work with you. But it's hard work. If I knew how hard it was to recover, especially in the early years, I actually, to be honest, kind of downplay that to people because of how hard the work is. I want them to enter it and get into it and start feeling better because hindsight, oh my gosh, this was such work. This was so much time. This was, and it's not just about dropping using pornography. It's about understanding why I used pornography in the first place. It's about doing a lot of trauma work. It's about figuring out what was wrong with me as a person that led me to be the man who did that. And then after figuring that out, also figuring out who do I want to be moving forward. I'll tell you, it was easier to quit porn and alcohol than it was to develop empathy. But that's something that I've worked on the last 10 years because I now have who I want to be as a man. And there was a lot of personality traits and a lot of behaviors that I was lacking, that I've been working on. To me, that's the biggest part of recovery is becoming the person you know you can become. Well, I suppose, Joshua, you have a second chance at life now and a second chance to prove yourself. Uh, you say you're a good person now and you're helping others. And I think people would appreciate that, that you are helping others after what you've been through. Um, i got to thank you very much for joining us today. The books, by the way, um, you can name them all for me there if you want to. Yeah, the most, actually, the first book is The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. That is a look at kind of my last five years of addiction and what happened. Um, my second book was about betrayal trauma, and that's called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? 
My third book was more of a journalistic look at the uh, effect of online pornography and how it exploded during the pandemic. Um, that's called Porn in the Pandemic. Course, and my absolutely. most recent absolutely. book yep. is called I'm Reading This Book About Porn Addiction for a Friend. And that is a book about how to begin to assess your porn addiction and begin to figure out what kind of help you need. Um, the books are available at all the usual outlets, I imagine, yes. Amazon and everywhere yes. else. Everywhere online that you buy those books. The name is on the screen there, by the way, for the Irish audience in particular. I'll tell you why. Because in mo most people in Ireland wouldn't be calling you Joshua Shea. They'd say Joshua O'Shea. O'Shea. We, we'd stick an O in there somewhere just, for, just to satisfy our Irishness. The, the family joke is that the O fell off in the ocean on the way over here. Yeah, because no matter how many times I say your name, I'm so tempted to throw an O in in the middle there. But oh, I, I know. I know. That's just because we're Irish. But Joshua... I wish you well. I think Thank most you. people will make up their own mind after they've watched uh, the podcast or, or listened to the interview. They will make up their own mind as to whether they believe you deserve the forgiveness that you've had and the second chance that you've had in life to help others. But I thank you very much indeed for joining us and thank you for your honesty as well. I do appreciate it. Um, thank you very and much thank indeed. You, thank you for giving me this time. I appreciate it. And I just want to say that for anybody listening, if I can become a pornography addict who reaches these kinds of depths, anybody can. There is no stereotypical addict. If you believe you need help, get it. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085-100-2255. The Niall Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.